Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Not only thinkers and writers, but also photographers. It's October the 5th, and I have one of the world's leading photographers uh, on the show today <laughs> to talk about America and specifically the American dream. We've talked endlessly about the American dream in this show. Uh, we've had George pa uh, uh, we've had George Packer, my old friend, talking about the great unwinding and the the decline and fall of American civilization. We had Carl Hoffman recently talking about liar circus and the unraveling of life in American small towns. Um, Ian Brown is the author of a new photography book, American Dreams. He's based in Canada. About at the moment, he's speaking to us from some undisclosed place three hours north of Toronto. Uh, he's just come out with this amazing book, uh, pictorially and intellectually, I think, American Dreams, which is about 160 or 70 photos of, uh, of American life and American dreams, not only of American life and dreams, but the, the, the short letters of his subject, which I think add enormously to the book. Um, Ian, why the book? What, what are you trying to do here? Well, you know, as a Canadian, I think that uh, there's an inherent interest <clears throat> at, in what happens in the United States, you know, being the, the neighbor next door. Uh, and I always thought that the idea of the American dream was this sort of interesting construct and in that it's, <clears throat> it's a distinctly American thing, right? There's no such thing as the British dream or the Canadian dream or the Japanese dream. Well, there's so, the British nightmare. That's why we all leave. But uh, right. <laughs> I assume Canadians are too boring to dream, are they? They just sort of... Well, I don't know. That remains to be seen. I think people are pretty happy to be here right now. Uh, I, you know, I found that in my sort of early travels to the U.S. that there was a real disconnect between the mythology that uh, both exists outside of the United States and within the United States. And then the reality that I was sort of seeing with my own two eyes. Um, there's a great uh, Bruce Springsteen quote where he talks about how he spent most of his career trying to judge the distance between the American reality and the American dream. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I thought there was something really interesting in that space. Well, was that from a, a Bruce Springsteen song or, or was it something from his book? I think that was actually, he said it at a press conference in Europe, I believe. Uh, but I mean, that quote kind of stuck with me. And, and, and the other thing too, Andrew, is that, you know, the American dream doesn't actually exist in any formal way, right? It's not in the constitution or in the founding papers, or it's not written into law. So I thought that there was something interesting in that because it doesn't exist, it's up for interpretation. Um, Would it be fair to say that your book, which I found, to be honest, to be incredibly sad and profound, and pictures can, of course, tell 
a much richer story in many ways than text. Um, you captured some of the deep sadness, the catastrophe of American life. Um, would it be fair to say that the book could have been called The End or The Death of the American Dream? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that certainly has been used um, in public space. You know, we've, in fact, Donald Trump, I think in 2015, said the American Dream is dead, right? So, uh, you know, I mean, I think that the sadness and uh, a lot of the really heartbreaking stories that uh, are in the book from people who have written things in their own words, um, I think, to be honest, it actually maybe reveals a lot of the sort of underlying social scaffolding in the U.S., uh, you know, I spent 12 years traveling around photographing people in all 50 states, and I spent a lot of time <clears throat> on front porches and at kitchen tables just listening to people tell their stories. And I think that the, a, a big takeaway, at least for me personally, uh, is that there's a lot of people who are just treading water in America. You know, yeah, like, you and know, the, uh, unfortunately, the the treading of water is is sometimes done now uh, with one leg. Um, given the American catastrophe of various right. overseas wars, uh, for those listening on the podcast, you won't see this photo of Justin Lansford. It's uh, one reason why you should watch this show as well as listen. Uh, but this remarkably sad photo, um, Ian, is of Justin Lansford, a young man in tremendous health with just one leg. Tell me about Justin, about the photograph and his version of the American dream. Mm -hmm. uh, well, he, Justin is a, um, he lives in Tampa, Florida. I met him uh, back a number of years ago. Uh, he, was, he did a couple of tours in Afghanistan. And he was with the 82nd Airborne in 2012 when an uh, uh, improvised explosive device <clears throat> detonated under the truck that he was in, and he ended up losing his left leg. So uh, he's a, a what some people call a wounded warrior. Uh, he came back stateside, and um, what I thought he wrote for his his American Dream. And, and just maybe to give context, you know, part of what this whole thing is, is that I actually asked every person I photographed to write down uh, analog in their own handwriting on a piece yeah. of paper. Which um, adds enormously to the book. Uh, it's, again, very poignant, uh, particularly you can tell so much about people, I think, from not only from their handwriting, but their spacing and their manner of writing, let alone what they actually write. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly adds a, um, a more intimate element to it. Um, and I think, you know, part of it gives some nuance. I, what I thought was remarkable in, <clears throat> in what he wrote was just that upon reflection, uh, he, he actually wrote something about um, that up until the point when I'd asked him to actually think about it, he'd never actually thought about what that what the American dream had meant to him, despite the fact that he went and was fighting for America. Mm. So I think for him, um, it was a real point of reflection. And, um, you know, we had a really long, as happened with a lot of the people in this book, 
really long and emotional conversation, right? Um, I've come to learn, I think, that when you ask someone what their American dream is, you know, the initial sort of lightning response is, uh, is one thing. But when people actually took time to take the exercise of writing down on a piece of paper, you know, sitting at the table with her, in his case, his wife, uh, and thinking about it, it becomes a, a much deeper experience because um, you're really asking someone to, to ask them who they are. Exactly. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, Ian Trump. Uh, he's, for better or worse, unavoidable in, in this kind of conversation. I thought this photo of Chris White mm-hmm. and his wife just before the 2016 election really brilliantly somehow captured the hopes, but also the childishness of the people who have put their faith in in um, in Trump. Uh, who who is Chris Wright? He's ironically from liberal Missouri, but he's anything but liberal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I'm glad that you caught that. Well, so um, Chris lives with his family in, as you said, liberal Missouri, which is a few hours south of Kansas City. Uh, liberal is a really small little place. I think there was only like three or 400 people who live in the sort of uh, surrounding community. And you know what? Um, when I met him, I mean, he was super lovely and a good dude, right? He cares for his kids. He goes to church. Uh, he loves his country. And I realize, um, you know, he just, he'd never been anywhere else. His world is is so contained. And so he was putting all his chips into Donald Trump uh, back when I met him, which was a few months prior or a month prior to the 2016 election. And I think, you know, what I was saying earlier about the mythology, he um, brought into Trump's mythology about being a successful business person and being able to turn the country around. I'm curious as a a photographer, um, Ian, Again, I don't want to vulgarize your profession, but you're in the business of capturing the truth or a truth. What you make of these people who who are so delusional, one of the things that this Chris J. Wright writes is, when I was a kid, we didn't have to worry about someone being kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people seem to be living in fantasy land, in, in the Wizard of Oz land. They believe the lies that get uh, spread on networks like Fox. Uh, how do you, as a photographer, try to capture the reality of people like Chris White, who Chris Wright, who who lives a delusional life, or at least in one sense, a delusional life? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. I'll give you a quick anecdote about him. When I met him, and we were chatting, and uh, he was showing me his place. And I think for a lot of people, they would consider him to live in sort of poor circumstances. Um, you know, there's appliances out on the lawn and cars up on blocks. And he's got, can't see it in the photograph there, or maybe just behind his wife, but he had a flag hanging in the ground. And we, we were chatting and uh, somehow the conversation came up. So this was, let's say September 2016, migrants leaving North Africa for Europe, right? And as we were talking, he said, uh, or his girlfriend said something to the effect of, oh yeah, all the all the migrants coming to Boston in boats. 
And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, yeah, there's like on the news, there's all these pictures of migrants in life jackets coming like to Boston. And I said, no, 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 you mean like to North Africa, right? Like they're going to Tunisia and to Greece. And I said, nope. So, you know, I, it's not my place to be condescending or, or tell them that they're wrong. But I said, that, that, I think you got that confused. And I said, where did you guys see this? And he said, well, we saw it on TV, right? And then um, he said, oh, and there's also all these beheadings in Chicago, Muslims that are beheading people in Chicago. I said, what are you talking about? That's not, that's not a thing. And they said, well, we saw it on the news, right? And so to the point that you just made, I, I was, and I mean, I had this experience with a lot of people, is that the United States news delivery system is so self-contained sometimes. And as you know, I mean, if you put someone like Chris Wright, who watches Fox and then everything else down that side of things, and then you put him in a room with someone who's listening to NPR. Or now.tv. Right. Or now.tv. Or reads the New York Times. And you said this. I mean, those people are alternate versions of, of the same experience, right? And I think that's so, something that is really... Yeah. Uh, One of the, I mentioned at the beginning how sad this book is, um, Ian. This picture in particular just tore up my heart. It's so sad. Particularly, this is Greg and Ellen in East Liverpool, Ohio. Uh, Greg, Greg is explaining to you that he would be charged $175 to hold his baby son after birth. I don't quite understand that, but mm -hmm. it just seems something so sad, so so destroyed yeah. about these people. T tell me about Greg and Ellen in East Liverpool, Ohio. So they're a young couple. When I met them, they were 19 and 20. Uh, East Liverpool is in the south part of Ohio. It borders um, Pennsylvania on one side and West Virginia on the other. Uh, it's very typical of that area. Uh, there used to be 50,000 people in the town, and it's now down to about 9,000. And it's been ravaged by opioids and, um, you know, people are really struggling there. So Greg and Ellen, I met them. I was connected to them through some other people. And I actually photographed them. That picture that you have up was taken the day after Donald Trump was elected mm. uh, on the, the Wednesday, I guess. They didn't seem very happy about that. Well, um, you know, they're really good kids. Uh they had a daughter, uh, Cadence, who was four in that photograph, and then a and then a young boy. And so Greg's story that you mentioned, he was telling me um, when they do their birth plan, uh, there's a thing that they call skin to skin when a baby's born. And so essentially what that means is that they've come up now. I have a daughter who's 10, and uh, and when she was born in Canada here, they were implementing this at the time. So it's been around for a while. But skin to skin essentially is that um, <clears throat> there's science that shows now, there's lots of medical evidence that shows that the very first thing that they will do in a delivery uh, before they even cut the umbilical cord is they'll take the baby and place it onto mom's chest. And then uh, directly after that onto dad or partner's chest all right which is all very well but being charged 175 dollars extras is especially for people 
people as poor as are self-evidently poor as this is is outrageous. We had a, a guy on the show from Princeton University, Harold Jaynes, mm-hmm. last month, Ian, who argued that America is like late Soviet Russia. And looking at some of these photos suggests the fundamental breakdown of the American system. Um, did you... Yeah. Did you find that? I mean, do you get the sense that America or the American dream just simply doesn't work anymore? It's fundamentally broken? Well, I think that that instance that you just mentioned with Greg and Ella, I mean, the skin to skin, because in Ohio, it's determined to be a action-based uh, outcome, they consider it to be a billable service. They can charge for it because it has benefits. So, you know, in my feeling in, in a, you know, a society or a community where you just want to produce good people <laughs> and have closer communities, it would make sense to just include that. And I think- mildly. And, you know, adding these things and confusing people with long, complicated bills is, is another example of how the system's broken. Uh, one area, of course, where the system is self-evidently broken in 2020 is in uh, race, uh, relations between blacks and whites, and the way in which the police have treated uh, black people, Black Lives Matter. Uh, is this a, 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 this photo in Flint, Michigan? I know you've got a couple of others from Flint. Uh, did you find Flint as a sort of an epicenter of the the racial breakdown in America, or or should we ignore the color of these people's skin? Uh, I think, you know, Flint, to be honest, I mean, I spent a fair amount of time there. And most of the time that I spent there was in and around. And then after the um, tainted water crisis, you know, has created all kinds of, as far as lead poisoning and so forth. Um, Interestingly enough, when that was going on, city, the city's crime rate dropped and uh, all sorts of other data that, that the community, both black and white, came together, which I think is not uncommon in times of, you know, crisis. Um, however, right. you actually have a couple of other photos of people from... Uh from Flint, Michigan. Here's Megan with her boyfriend, Zach, who was very small handwriting. Um, so did you find in Flint that the situation of blacks mm-hmm. and whites was very similar in terms of how they were being abused, exploited by the system? I think the city on the whole is, is you know, there's a lot of struggle. But I, I have to say, I mean, there's so many great people. I think there isn't necessarily um, any correlation between people who are just good people in their economic situation. But I think Flint in particular is a place that uh, has has been kind of left behind, right? And in a lot of ways is, is a... To is put a, it mildly, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, probably is an exceptional place, but also, as, as Michael Moore has pointed out, symbolic of this, again, the death of the American dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, photos, of course, tell us so much. This photo of... Uh, Art, uh, tender up in Nebraska, classically Midwest, and also speaks of the way in which people have lost control, it seems, of their own bodies. Um, did you find a lot of classically overweight, unhealthy people 
in your travels. Did this strike you? And was this one of the reasons why you've featured this particular photograph? Uh, it's not one of the reasons I featured that photograph, but yes, I think that there is, um, I mean, that's part of the American makeup, right? Is I think it's, what is it? 30% of the population is obese. But these and... people look so unhealthy. And again, it's ironic that they're surrounded with cornfields, with food, and yet they've obviously overindulged, both of them. Mm -hmm. Not only unhealthy, but poor as well. Yeah, I mean, in their case, uh, they were going through a struggle. Uh, they live in a rural area of Nebraska, and uh, <clears throat> there was the um, uh, Keystone Pipeline that was going to be put through right across their land. And so there was, they were really dealing with a lot of struggle as far as, um, as far as having uh, corporate interest try to um, try to move into their community, uh, which happens, you know, all across the U.S. But um, really good people, and like I said earlier, they're sort well, of. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about the good people, Ian. No one's suggesting that Americans aren't good, although then I don't think they're any better or worse than anyone else. Here's another example, Ben Baker from Georgia, another guy who's lo clearly lost control of his own body. Um, he, there's something perhaps a little bit more Trumpian about him, although he's not explicitly Trumpian like uh, a couple of the other photos. Mm -hmm. um, he, he says the American dream is about choice, and he's obviously made too many choices in terms of what he eats. Um, do you find that in this sense, the American dream has become a nightmare in terms of, of your photographs? Well, you know, uh, Ben is probably a good example of the importance of having both the visual and the written in this case, because I think if you just saw a picture of him, he's a big dude. He's got a gun on his hip. He lives in Southern Georgia. Um, he sort of embodies uh, Southern redneck culture of, of which he is proud. However, what he wrote um, for his American dream was to me quite surprising because he wrote that, um, uh, that the American dream is about trying. Right. And he gave some interesting examples. And I think that, you know, to me, photographs, of course, can make people, um, come to quick judgment right away. And one of the things that I think this book uh, <clears throat> goes into a little bit deeper is the fact that when you pair what people have written in their own words, this isn't my interpretation of my experience with them, but when people have written something in their own words, um, I think sometimes it, it can offer interesting and surprising results. Yeah, and, and it's a wonderful book. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I think I'm probably being a little too harsh judging people on their uh, on their physical makeup, maybe uh, slightly unkind, but it is very striking. Uh, we've got a couple more photos. Let's try and get through them, um, Ian. Uh, Maria Castro is, at least in terms of this selection, I know you've got others in the book, uh, one of the few, uh, one of what, the, the only uh, Latino uh, figure in the book. Uh, you, you photographed her in Imokali, Florida. Uh, what's so striking about her? Well, I thought what was interesting is, so the town, Immokalee, is, um, is uh, 
is the second poorest town in Florida. And it's about 40 miles inland from Naples on the Gulf Coast, which is- Worst being, you mean the poorest? This, yes, the second poorest town in Florida. Um, and Immokalee is, uh, is primarily made up of um, migrant farm workers. So Maria, in her, in her written piece there, talks about how her grandparents um, and parents both had come from Mexico. Um, and, uh, so when she was a kid, I mean, she was, she's the, the daughter of migrant workers, uh, and she's gone on to prosper and has a great job and now lives in Naples, which is the second wealthiest community in Florida. Uh, so I thought, you know, she represented an interesting, um, element in that, you know, she sort of embodies what I think a lot of people would think about. The American dream and that she came from uh, some pretty harsh circumstances and has really made something of herself. Right. And, and what she writes is remarkable. She says, looking back, my American dream is filled with the smells of chemicals. Right. Uh, but as you suggest, she is one of the, the more cheerful examples in your book. Let's end, though, with one of the least cheerful. And then visually, this was the one that really struck me, a guy who who writes at the end, he said, P.S. I have a black eye because I I got punched by some Michigan State frat boys. I don't always look like this. But if there is a picture that's, that summarizes the American dream in 2020, this is the one. Where did you take this photo? Who is this guy, uh, Ian? Uh, well, his name's Cody LaRue, and um, he's a super good dude, actually. And he, uh, I met him in a raging snowstorm in Flint, Michigan, uh, during the winter, I think it was in February. And, um, yeah, I think, I mean, that's, I suppose you're right. It's the, it is the 2020 picture with the black guy. Right. Um, but I, you know, same thing. I think he, what he wrote was actually really interesting and in that he recognizes as a straight white kid that he had all the privilege of what people would perceive the American dream to be. And, um, uh, he, you know, he was, I thought, quite interesting in the way that he had these aspirations to one day be uh, a famous filmmaker. And he recognizes through his writing that, in fact, you know, he's living in Flint. Uh, he still makes films with his friends. He's got a job that he kind of hates, but it allows him to make movies and hang out on the weekend with the people he likes. And, um, and that he's come to kind of reconcile what his dreams originally were with actually being okay with what he's, what he's doing now. So he's acknowledged that the American dream doesn't exist and he's living his life. Um, this yeah. book American dreams by, uh, by Ian um, is, is really uh, a wonderful book. I, I, uh, Ian Brown, I, I strongly suggest everyone not only looks at it, but reads it. Ian, you are, as I said, three hours north in some undisclosed location of in Toronto. It's getting cold there. You're stuck inside. Uh, what else should people be reading in late 2020 to make sense of the world? The death of the American dream or the death of, of other dreams or, or perhaps the birth of dreams? What, what, what would you suggest? I The thing that would immediately come to mind is I think people should just read. Right? I mean... Uh, 
so few people are doing that to begin with. And so the exercise of actually reading a book, holding something in your hands that's tactile, uh, no matter what it is, I think is just a good start, right? I mean, as you know, everyone is so consumed right now with um, everything being digital. And as has been uh, revealed during this time of COVID, analog activities, right? Like baking is through the roof, making puzzles is through the roof. Um, I think people default to the things that we connect with. And so reading a book uh, is a really, you know, connected activity. I will tell you this book in particular, I had some people who reached out to me a few weeks ago. It was a group of women from Oregon who, uh, one of them got the American Dreams book and they had a dinner party. And after dinner, uh, while they were drinking wine, they passed the book around the table and uh, got people to read aloud some of the uh, handwritten pieces. And one of them um, found and reached out to me online and just said they went through several bottles of wine, several boxes of Kleenex. But it got the discussion going in that they all started thinking about what their own American dream was, which essentially, again, becomes a little bit of a referendum on who we are and, and, and how our lives are going. So, you know, I think reading in general is good. Um, and, and hopefully that allows people to maybe put their phones down and actually then uh, start a conversation. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.